Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you look for it, every day has cause for celebration. Celebrate a friend for their promotion baby wedding life thing. Celebrate yourself for keeping the couch warm. It's no easy feat, especially if it's a big couch. Or maybe you just want to celebrate living in 2023 where you can get beer, wine, and spirits delivered from Drizzly in under 60 minutes without leaving said couch. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com and get your favorite drinks delivered today. Welcome to Let It Roll, the story of how and why rock and roll happened with Ed Ward and Nate Wilcox. It's time to let it roll. I know that last week I promised that Ed Ward and I would be talking about Bob Wills and Western Swing this episode, and we will get to that. But instead, this week I've got a special guest, Dr. Cam Cobb the author of What's Big and Purple and Lives in the Ocean, The Moby Grape Story. As always, you can access our YouTube playlists and learn more about the episodes on our website, letitrollpodcast.com. This week, Cam and I begin the amazing and tragic story of Moby Grape, possibly the greatest rock band you've never heard of. They were the next big thing of 1967's legendary San Francisco scene, recorded an all-time classic debut album, still managed to not have a hit. We're going to tell the story of how that happened. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Welcome to the Let It Roll podcast. This is your host, Nate Wilcox, and this week we have a special guest, Dr. Cam Cobb, the author of What's Big and Purple and Lives in the Ocean, the Moby Grape story. Dr. Cobb, welcome. Well, thank you very much. This is your first full-length rock and roll book, right? That's correct. How and why did you pick Moby Grape of all bands to write a book about? Yeah, this is a this is a very good question. So, I've loved Moby Grape for you know over a quarter century now. I'm in my late 40s, and I I thought about different people I could write about, and I ended up um, focusing on Moby Grape. I think one thing that I enjoyed about reading the book is that I'm a Gen Xer, you're a Gen Xer. And your introduction to Moby Grape was the same place I heard about Moby Grape, which was oh. the Rolling Stone uh, record guide from the early 80s, w- mm-hmm. which, which, you know, for a lot of music nerds at that point in time, that was like a Bible. Mm-hmm. But, you know, <laughs> right. Gen X high school kids trying to sort their way through, you know, all the 60s music that we were constantly being inundated with. And 
the 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 premise of the Rolling Stone record guide was it would only review book records that were in print at the time. A very different That's era. Right. Unlike today, when you can hear any album ever, you know, within five minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, back in the day, you know, things had to be in print physically and in the store. And and for a record that was in and out of print, it got lucky and was in print at that point in time. And they gave it five stars. And what did that mean? I mean, what did that mean to you as a Gen X kid reading about a record by a band you'd never heard of? So I I was uh, really intrigued, actually, by the entry that was written about them in that guide. And I I was, you know, like my parents introduced me to certain music. And so I had Elvis and and Gordon Lightfoot and the Beatles and guess who and and i loved all that music but i i became interested in going beyond that and so i went beyond that initially with bands like the kinks and the who and the stones and um jethro tall and then i became i wanted to go further and, and discover more it was a, you know it was kind of insatiable and and that guide was a real like like you said it was like a bible and it like helped you navigate this this terrain that i i didn't know you know i didn't live through the 60s so i, I didn't know that terrain and so the, the entry on Moby Grape is intriguing. What was written about that first album, when you read the entry, like you, you, it makes me want to run out and, and buy the album. And it, But that was a time when it was hard to find those albums. And so I found the, um, the Edsel uh, edition of the CD at, at a record shop in downtown Toronto. And from the first moment that I heard that first track, Hey Grandma, I knew I was going to love this band. And they certainly didn't let me down. I, I, that whole album from start to finish is a, it, it, it's wonderful. And let me read just a, a little snippet from that review because it had the same effect on me as it did you, and I'm sure a lot of people. Uh, Moby Grape made only one good album, but what an album it is. Its debut LP is as fresh and exhilarating today as it was when it exploded out of San Francisco during 1967 Summer of Love, a testament to the band's visionary concept of electric Ameri- eclectic American music. I mean... You could not get a more glowing review, but then the very next, and it's five stars, and then the very next album gets one star, and that's what hooked mm-hmm. you as really fascinated with the band, right? Mm-hmm, absolutely, and and as you mentioned, the the guide only had the in print albums at the time. So there's it only reviewed the two, and then I think that the um, the um compilation album got three stars, which had come out in the early '70s, and so Moby Grape '69, which is their really their third album and truly fine citizen are, are there's a vague mention of other albums at the end of the entry, but you don't know what they were. So it, it's really kind of enticing because you have this information about the band. They, the first album's rated at five stars, the second one at one star, and then you don't actually know exactly what all the other albums are. So it's, it's, it's like, it's a mystery and it's a very intriguing one. Yeah. And, and the way that they did uh, the second album was, you know, uh, let me read this. The Grapes' rapid downhill slide remains one of the mysterious tragedies of the late 60s. Wow was a complete failure, a double album that included a bonus jam LP that made absolutely no sense. Um, it's, you know, as a kid reading that, I was I was totally intrigued too, and it took me several years to track down the Edsel re-release of the first album, and honestly, I was a little bit underwhelmed by that. I literally had been looking for that album and Richard Hell and the Voidoids' first album, Blank Generation, for years, based on the mm-hmm. Rolling Stone record guide. They both came in back in print in the late 80s, and I bought them on the same day. 
they had literally mm. been at the top of my list, you know, for ten years, and I got them the same day. And of course, it was a disappointment. Both of them are. They're both albums I've come to love immensely, you know. But but that hype. So it's interesting to me that you had that immediate love thing. But I want to I want to touch on this mysterious tragedies of the late '60s because, you know, as you read the book, this is a, the tragedy is way more than they made. Uh, a, b- a bad second album. I mean, these guys went from you guys are the next big thing, you're going to be immense rock stars, to literally madness, insane asylums, the Marines, um, you know. Tell us a little bit about the implosion of the band. So this was a band that um, they, they came together from from different places geographically and um very different upbringings and so um bob mosley grew up down in san diego he's very um very athletic and um as he spoke about in an interview years ago he had um they were like um soldiers actually who were lived nearby and so he kind of grew up with that and he was into you know he played very soulful he sang very soulfully and and played very kind of soulful music and he had mentioned, you know, in interviews, he'd been in, uh, influenced by expectations. And then you have Jerry Miller and Don Stevenson, who come from the Northwest Coast. Uh, and they had played a lot in Seattle and played in a lot of R&B bands and, and Hammond, B. Hammond um, trios. And then you have Peter Lewis, whose mom was an Oscar winner. And he played in a surf band, actually, with um, other kids of celebrities in the early 60s then he actually studied to be a pilot became a commercial pilot for a while and then he formed a folk rock band and and played in that immediately before Moby Grape and then you have Skip Spence who um, played in the Jefferson Airplane he played some kind of folky music and they came so they all can Skip Spence from uh, Windsor actually in Ontario Canada and Peter Lewis, of course, from Hollywood. And so they came from different musical places and geographic places. And, and you have this, um, this pedigree, like it's, it's, it's like a um, sports team that is uh, unfairly stacked with all-star players, players at every position who are all-stars and keeping that, they were, they were, they were formed together in San Francisco in late summer of 66. And then, they very quickly had people bidding for them. So they were playing at the Ark, which is, um, you know, is a, a, a boat that had become a nightclub, didn't have alcohol, so they could stay open all night. And, and that was in, um, in Sausalitos, just north of the Golden Gate Bridge. And they had a, that time in the Ark, which was very good for them, where they were at one place, they're playing there regularly, and all they were writing and rehearsing things in front of people and jamming with people. So the, that first album had a long percolation period because they had the whole fall of 66 and early 67 when they they eventually the bidding war um, among record companies led them to sign with Columbia partly because um, a lot of the guys in the band absolutely loved the birds and so they signed with Columbia they and they recorded the first album very quickly in just a you know just um you know, two handfuls of days uh, spread out over two months where they're going back and forth between down in LA 
and then up back again to San Francisco. And so Columbia then uh, put a lot of money and attention into marketing that first album, which put a lot of pressure on the band. And then all of a sudden they were touring all over the place and they were, they were going uh, almost like in a spiral around North America. And they, after a while, after that first album did not become a top 10 hit, although it was on the chart for half a year and it was in the, reached a pole position of 24, Columbia saw that as not enough. And so these, these guys uh, became sojourners and, and that's people who are changing their location. They're living in different locations and working in those different locations. And this, this really did not work out well for the band. And so that's where they, where you see that transition where things sort of magically came together for the first album and they still were capable of amazing music and still made amazing music for that second album. But things started to go wrong um, at that point in time. And a big part of it was the huge expectation that was um, thrust upon them when that album came out. Yeah, and there's also an element of uh, Columbia and David Rubinson, who had produced their first album, trying to do course corrections and correct their mistakes. And, and you know, one of the beautiful things about that album and, and one of the things reasons I think it's held up so well is it's so tight. Every song could be a hit single. In fact, that was Columbia's most disastrous move, and we'll talk about that when we get to your Three Punches chapter. But it's this tight album of just gems, and it's got five different songwriters, or four, if you, because two of the guys were a team. So there's four different mm -hmm. songwriters, you know, throwing songs out. And sometimes there's different combinations of, of song, but every song sounds holistic because they all harmonize, and you get the feeling that Skip Spence was orchestrating this, that he was le the lever, you know, the fulcrum of the band, and he had these opposing forces, and Skip could bring it all together into his vision. But then the second album, it's like the White Album or something, where each it's every man for himself, and there's no teamwork. And you know, Rubinson had made this choice, which possibly is why the album is so beloved, to not have any psychedelic noodling, you know, no hippie freak crap. Like this is going to be all hits. And of all the years to do that, that's probably the absolutely worst time in rock history to do that because of two things: the monkeys had hit huge in 1966 and really split the rock audience between young teens and, and older people. You know, this is a time when rock music is taking over for folk and jazz as the music of college students. And suddenly there's this prefab four that was manufactured by, you know, music pros and TV producers who made great music and had massive hits, but it, the word got out that the monkeys didn't play their own music which is not something anybody would have cared about 10 years earlier or even two years earlier. But in 1966 and 67, that was heresy because the Beatles played all their own music. You know, Bob Dylan wrote all his own songs. And, and so this huge hype has just happened. And the older audience is too smart for that. So when Moby Grape comes out with this super tight album, that was seen as a weak spot because other bands that came out at the same time, like The Doors, had like two eight-minute songs that were jams on it. You know, I mean, that was like 
a, a point in time when the Rolling Stones had just put out an 11 minute song. Bob Dylan had just done a 15 minute song. You know that that was seen as cutting edge. The Paul Butterfield Blues Group had just done you know a 19 minute song or what however long East West is 11 minutes. And this and and this is a band who have an incredible psychedelic jam called Dark Magic that was recorded live on December 31st, 1966, that would have been so incredible on an album in 1967, you know? Um, mm-hmm. So so uh, I'm talking too much, but, but I want to, you know, so he makes that decision, but when he goes to make the second album, it's after Sgt. Pepper has come out, and he gets what they call Sgt. Pepper-itis. Tell us mm-hmm. what, what that is. So, uh, yeah, Robert Criscow famously, he actually, Robert Criscow's review of the second album is, uh, I would say, is a sort of mixed to positive range. But one of the terms that he uses um, is like a, the coin that phrase, pepperitis. And so the band um, were, were replicating some, some of the things that the Beatles had been doing. And in, in the book, I write a little bit about why that happened and Moby Grape were, you know, uh, a number, one of a number of bands who were, who were so heavily influenced by the Beatles at that point, but they, they initially, it, it was a really um, fragmented album, uh, the creation process. And so the first album came right at the dawn of the summer of love in 67. It was slowly moving up in the chart, um, not selling as much as Columbia wanted, and so Columbia put them in the studio in, in August of 67. And initially they recorded songs uh, down, they were staying down in Malibu and recording in LA. And they recorded, uh, they started to record He, which is a, a beautiful song by Peter Lewis. And uh, The Place and the Time, which is a song by Don and Barry. And then Peter Wind by Bob, which is a, an older song that um, Bob had written. And um, they played they played that song live, actually. I think they played it either at Monterey or, um, or their album release. So it was in their live set at that time. And they also recorded a song for a movie, Sweet Ride. Um, and so these were uh, songs at that time that were not, they were, they were different than the first album, but they weren't, um, they weren't totally oscillating from the first album. Yeah, it's a rational follow-up. I mean, when you, my Those big first religion- four. Yeah, and I think didn't they do the the Skip Spence demos of Scene and and you can do anything around that same time as well. So so what happened was um, Columbia wasn't happy with the speed of their progress. Apparently they were having too much fun in in Malibu. So Columbia kind of shut down the album and then they went back to doing some live gigs, and they they were relocated. This is when the sojourning began. So they they were kind of sojourning when they they had to, they had to move down from the Bay Area down to Malibu. And then they went back to the Bay Area. So this look uh, September, October of 66, and they're playing, or 67, sorry, playing live shows. And then in 60, 67, in, in November 67, they were relocated to New York. And they were using then Columbia Studios in New York. And that's when they recorded Seeing You Can Do Anything. They're, they're, that's when they started to make more headway with what was going to be, eventually become their second album I see. and yeah but the the fundamental thing that you know my, my big religious conversion to moby grape came just 
five years ago or so when I heard the alternate tracks from that album. When yeah. the CD, there was a brief window in 2007 when their CDs were all in print. All their albums were re-released with bonus tracks. And when yep. I heard the bonus tracks and I heard the original version of Place in the Time, because WOW opens with the Place in the Time and it is the most Sgt. Pepperitis song of all. I mean, there's a literal <laughs> ripoff of the crescendo uh, you know, from day in the life, there's a bicycle horn tooting the lyrics almost quote, I'd love to turn you on. But when you hear the original version, it's Moby grape, it's heavy guitars, but it's new and innovative. It starts with this chopping guitar chord. And then they do this almost the inverse of Nirvana's famous, you know, quiet, then loud. They do this sort of, uh, loud and then quiet thing. They go from this chopping guitar chord to just two guys harmonizing or three or four harmonizing you know and it's this beautiful rock song and and <clears throat> you know when i heard that or i heard you can do anything which is an unfinished song by skip spence he didn't even write all the lyrics of the verses but i mean this was like an obvious massive hippie anthem that also yeah. had the three guitar attack that Leonard Skinner you know would later perfect or you know the Doobie Brothers and and it's to me it's just like Rubinson did not know what he had and and the fact that he didn't even push Spence to finish you can do anything is just staggering to me uh, because the finished wow album while I love it and it's got some great songs on it um like Murder in the Heart of the Judge which was one you didn't mention but think they recorded those LA sessions. It's just a killer rock track. Um, but it's got a song that's literally played at 78 speed on the original version where, you know, there's an announcement, you're going to need to stop your needle and change the speed on your record player. It, it's got a song with Donald Duck voices on it. It's yeah, got, yeah. you know, symphony strings, piano ballads, horns. And, and the overall effect is just sort of like, uh, you know, milk that's gone bad in the refrigerator. It's just overripe. So when you, yeah, so so it's interesting. So those those tracks that you were referring to, like those two ones that were like the strong ones, the the place the the versions that are the stronger ones that that were unreleased until 2007. Um, place in the time, bitter winds. Those were the ones initially recorded in the summer of '67 in, in August. And then something happened, so that they 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 were stopped, and then they went to New York. And when they went to New York um, in November, they had it was it was under two weeks that they were in New York, and they they were they were recording again. That's when they did "Can't Be So Bad," which is it's it's a strong track. Don really actually loved playing that one. And they had um, a lot of horns on that, so there seemed to be more emphasis on adding other instruments once they moved to New York. And Skip had written these songs, You Can Do Anything and Seeing, which um, ended up, for some reason, getting put on the shelf. And and then they, after the two weeks in New York in, in November, they did a little bit of performing around New York, and then they did a little bit of performing in December. And then they went back to the Bay Area. And then in January, they went back New York for kind of like, um, you know, like this is like the last stand and we're going to get this album done. And so in mid-January to mid-February, that's when they finished off that album. And going from from those November sessions to the January sessions, those songs that Skip had written were like those two tracks are phenomenal tracks, Seeing and, and You Can Do Anything. You Can Do Anything is such a, it's such it's a an catchy anthem. 
song. Yeah, it's 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 great. It's, and so it's a late sixties free love anthem that I can't fathom how they did not see that this was a massive <laughs> hit in the making. You know, and then seeing is this devastating psychedelic exploration of breakdown and mm-hmm. you know and a presage is what skip's going to go go through but you know um it's and they later put it out on on moby grape 69 they did at least realize at some point that that was a great song and probably the mm-hmm. maybe even the capstone of their career but uh you know they shelve those and what skip gets to put on the album instead is you know an oldies 1920 style song Gene Autry, Foxtrot, or whatever it's called, and Motorcycle Irene, which is a fine, actually a beautiful song, but it's it's larded up with like motorcycle sound effects, and yeah. then uh, Funky Tunk, which literally has Donald Duck voices through the chorus, and it's just uh, sort of staggering. But one thing that uh, I've actually let this interview get way out of hand because I wanted to talk about a choice you made in your book, like the most distinctive thing about your book is that you basically you give a quick introduction to the band how you came to love it the basic outlines of the story and then you turn to their attempted comeback in 1971 and so i want to ask you like why did you choose to structure the book so unusually mm. <laughs> so um 1971 was when moby group all, all five members tried to get back together and they um, Reprise had bought out their contract with Columbia, so they're on Reprise Records. And they were living together down um, at a you know a place on Twenty Granite Creek, which is uh, down near Santa Cruz. And so this is the first real rock band reunion, and they had only broken up a couple years before, and it was an attempted rebirth for the band. And so I thought it would be interesting to look at the story of their attempted rebirth. And this is um, the the album of the band's career that is perhaps the, the least known of how it was created. And so for me, that was really interesting to try and dive into that, the story of that album and that reunion and try and uncover as much as I could uncover about it. Now, I also, when I was writing, thought about you know, am I going to, because actually when I wrote the book, I, I made a diary of Moby Grape. And so like, I, I have a diary that sort of recounts everything that they did and all the information that I collected for each day and for days that I had information. And so then I thought, well, with, with Granite Creek though, everything is, is really mixed up. And so you don't know exactly when things were happening. You know, that they were getting together in the springtime. They had some gigs in, in May and June and then they went back and they finished off the album in, in the summertime. And that's when things really fell apart in the late summer. So I thought I'm going to create this kind of experience for people. Cause now when I talk to members of the band, I'm asking them to remember things from before I was even born. And so sometimes I have difficulty remembering what I, what I have done the day before. So I'm asking a lot of these people. And so I, I, I get information and sometimes they, they don't remember details or sometimes some people remember things a little bit differently. So with Granite Creek, I thought I'm going to try and tackle that big mystery, the biggest mystery for me about the band. And I'm going to present that its own narrative. It's a narrative in its own reign. So I'm going to present that. It was kind of, I call it in the book, like the rebirth and the redeath of Moby Grape. And so I tell that story 
and that's the denouement I sort of think of, of them as a, as a five-person band. And then I thought, okay, then after doing that, I can go back and then I have to deal with their their genesis. And there's no one moment that Moby Great began. Even, you know, there was that one rehearsal that was, uh, well, yeah. for them, it was a very magical rehearsal. But before that rehearsal, there was a lot of... Um, uh, becoming for them like it was a, a, a process that they that they all went through of coming together and it happened over a period of time so I did the Granite Creek sort of mystery first I and I want readers to experience it the way that it was for the way that it is and was and is for them it was it was kind of um, mixed up and um, they you know when they made Granite Creek they didn't know what was going to happen every day because they had that kind of luxury of having a homemade studio in the house and so I want readers to have that experience when they when they read uh, that whole first part of the book and then i want readers to understand that there was a period of them becoming before they could become moby grape and so i that's when i give um and i try and i didn't do it like a diary effect again i i went and i did these sort of snapshots and i did a snapshot of skip spence at um at the matrix club and a snapshot of um peter lewis at gazari's and a snapshot i could uh, do a snapshot with bob and and, Jerry and, and let's and, um, let's cut in because uh, this is a big story and I and I uh, already frustrated with how I'm I'm helping you tell it here since since the story is so unknown. But essentially, these guys come together in 1966 in San Francisco, which many people call the real summer of love. Like for people on the scene in San Francisco in '66, that was the time to be there. That's when Jefferson Airplane and the Grateful Dead were were really taking off and the ballroom scene which was the big innovation of san francisco at that time I mean, mm -hmm, absolutely rock history this is the first time that young adults are coming together to hear rock bands play with full marshall stacks and big amps in big sound systems where you can you know it's not like the beatles with suitcase style amps getting drowned out by screaming girls suddenly the bands have sound systems that can overwhelm anything and they've got light shows, and LSD is on the scene. And, and suddenly, instead of playing in roller rinks on bills with 15 bands and each band playing two songs, they're playing you know, from 11 o'clock to 2 a.m. to young adults in an environment where people are taking acid and dancing to the light shows. And it's a completely mind-blowing experience for, because nothing like this literally has ever happened on earth before and, and you know new technologies and and new drugs and and new social rules and the, there's this wave of bands that explodes out of san francisco the grateful dead the jefferson airplane uh big brother and the holding company with janice joplin the 13th floor elevators are there the summer of 1966 the very first psychedelic band from texas and so moby grape is actually formed by the guy who was the original drummer for Jefferson Airplane. Can you tell the Matrix story really quick about how Marty Balin, the leader of the airplane, found Skip Spence? So Skip had been rehearsing with the band that went on to become uh, Quicksilver Messenger Service, and Marty Balin had observed him and, and was interested, but Skip wanted to be uh, a guitarist. Um, and he actually, and Marty Balin didn't know that he had done drumming beforehand, and he approached Skip and invited him to join his band. And Skip was uh, apparently like demurring at the beginning because he, he wanted to, to play guitar and, and be up front. And so he, Marty Billing didn't give up and he was, you know, really um, 
recruiting him to come into the band. And so Skip agreed and he joined Jefferson Airplane. And that was at the Matrix, which, you know, was had been converted from a, a pizza parlor into a uh, into a club. And it's kind of like in between. It was like a, a transformation. Cause it was like in between. It wasn't a ballroom, but that one was, uh, you know, certainly it wasn't exactly like the folk clubs. It was a little bit like the folk clubs. So that was that was representing that movement towards the ballrooms that would come at the, and that happened right in 65 in in September 65 when Skip got recruited there and and then the ballroom started like you said like in, in right at the end of 65 and right through in in mid early to mid 66 they they really took off in San Francisco yeah and Marty's vision you know i mean the Jefferson Airplane i think is a band that doesn't get its proper respect today because the Jefferson Starship and Starship went on so long and became so heinous. But in the 60s, the airplane was even bigger than the dead and even more of a hippie uh, flagship than the dead. You know, And, and Balin's vision was, I'm a folky, I'm a singer, kind of an old-style pop singer even, but, I, but this folk rock thing is what's happening. And I'm going to put together a folk rock band. And he recruited with me and a girl singer – but I want a full rock band. And he found Yorma Kakuin, who was a great guitar player. Jack Cassie was a great bass player. Also, Paul Kantner, who was more of a folky strummer. And then, you know, adding Skip Spence on drums is sort of that X factor. Like the knock on the San Francisco scene by a lot of rock critics is these were folkies who didn't know how to play rock and roll. And, and that having Skip was a good drummer, but he wasn't a great drummer. I mean, he wasn't a primarily a drummer, but I mean, he's in the band in the scene uh and they're managed by this guy matthew cates who's an impresario and and a, and a svengali figure but a, cutting a big swath on this scene that's really bubbling under they put out an album it does fairly well but then skip goes to mexico one weekend and matthew cates gets into a financial dispute with marty balin and they both get fired around the same time and so <clears throat> that's when cates and Skip, Kate decides to build a band around Skip Spence, who's clearly a genius, who's so charismatic. I mean, you know, Marty Balin, there's, I think it's one of the Rolling Stone history of rock and roll. Marty Balin says, I see this guy in the club, and he's like, that's my drummer, just, just from looking at him. I mean, th this is a rock star. And, you know, like you said, they put together this all-star team of musicians, and, and Kate's you know, had many pots, you know, he also managed It's a Beautiful Day. I mean, this guy was a real constructive force in the scene. I mean, he, he had a vision of putting bands together, but he finds, he's, you know, so he finds all these other players. And, and I think one thing that you don't really bring out in the book that I want to mention is there was always this tension between these folkies who have turned into rockers uh, mm -hmm. And these guys like Bob Mosley and, and Don Stevenson and Jerry Miller, who had been playing, who were club rockers, who'd been playing mm -hmm. R&B mm -hmm. in clubs and were mostly sort of more working class style guys. And from mm -hmm. you know, Bob's from San Diego and, and John and Derry from Seattle. But then they bring in uh, this folk rocker, Peter Lewis, who's got like the classic quintessential Hollywood resume. I mean, he was the son of Loretta Young. He's uh, in a surf band that that actually had some hit singles, and he forms a folk rock group. And briefly, he's in a group called the Joel Scott Hill Trio with Bach. Mm -hmm. And Cates had been scouting Joel Scott Hill. And so that's mm -hmm. where he found those two guys. But Bob had also 
Um, and and we need to mention like Bob's resume. He was in a band called the Misfits, that was San that's Diego's right. biggest R and B band, who opened for the Rolling Stones, and that's, that's a right. big deal, you know. Yeah, for sure. But uh, then he was it in San Francisco that Bob was in the Frantics with Don and Jerry. Um, yeah. So the Frantics were yeah they the Frantics were an older band that formed in the fifties, and um, they ended up moving down to the Bay area, they were interested in playing, um, on Broadway and in San Fran because the birds had played there and they didn't realize that they had gotten, they were booked to play in a strip club and they, and they were, they did not enjoy that. And so after a couple of weeks, they quit doing that and they were trying to figure out what they're going to do next. And so at one point they were going to go on their way back up to San Francisco and they went into a, a little, they were going to go uh, to Seattle. Seattle. That's yeah. right. Yeah. That, and so they went to a little club um, and they ran into the Warlocks, you know, before they became the Grateful Dead. And they got locked into staying, staying down there in the Bay Area. And so they did. And eventually they recruited um, Bob Mosley to be in the Frantics. And they recorded a couple of songs in early 66. They got released at the end of the summer of 66, just as they, they got released after the Frantics had broken up and, and uh, just as Moby Grape was forming. And so Bob knew Don and Jerry. And of course, Bob was with Peter who um, had been recruited to be with Skip. And so Bob re- recommended when the, when the drummer um, initial drummer um, dropped out of the band that was going to, that ended up becoming Moby Grape, Bob thought of, of Don and of course, and then Don came with Jerry. And so they, then they had three guitars guitars who played very different styles and were able to play together you know as they, as they described they're they're weaving in and out of each other and um th- and, th- and for it, them it was absolutely magical yeah it was like a, a a team you know all of them had done their apprenticeships and they were all accomplished players although they're from wild quite different backgrounds but when they came together they instantly clicked and I want to talk about their musical personalities a little bit because, you know, Jerry Miller is one of the best lead guitarists of that era. I mean, Eric Clapton uh, said, you know, who's the best guitar player around? And he says, Jerry Miller. This was in 67 or 68. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. how good this guy is. This guy's just an absolutely killer lead guitar player. And Skip Spence, as Fitz, somebody who's also a drummer, is a rocking rhythm guitar player. I mean, you know, if your band needs an engine, boom. There's Skip Spence on rhythm guitar. And then Peter Lewis is a folk finger-picking ace. And and so the three of them just naturally, each one had a different lane uh, that they played in. But they were also all really good rhythm guitar players. I mean, if you listen to it, you, the crosstalk of Moby Grape is just – it's bottomless listening pleasure if you really get into the what the guitars are doing. It's it's just amazing. And then you put on top of that Bob Mosley, who you know when he introduced himself uh, to Peter Lewis, you got this in the book. This is just a classic uh, quote. He says, "Halfway to Hollywood, the guy tells me I can sing anything up to high C like a motherfucker, and then uh, and I play and I play bass like a motherfucker, and that." You know, and he did play bass like a motherfucker. I mean, just an incredible bass player who locks in with the drummer and yet is all up and down the fretboard. And then Don Stevenson, 
is a solid drummer, you know, like plays the best shuffle ever, according to Jerry Miller. And so, you know, you have, it's the opposite problem of, you know, all these bands like the Grateful Dead, where they have two drummers, you know, one who can't keep time and, and, you know, the, the Jefferson airplane who have a guitar player trying to play drums. And, um, you know, it's just this incredible explosion of, of experience and yet I think there was a class suspicion on the part of the San Francisco scene against them because they were working class, they were club musicians, um, and that sort of comes back to haunt them. But let's talk about the hype and the next big thing period and, and how they got so hot. Sure. So um, you're absolutely right. So um, as you mentioned, like Bob, if you listen to the song Changes, it is absolutely phenomenal his bass work like it, that's, that's some of my favorite bass work period so when you look at the hype of the first album when i was putting the book together um you know what the the hype that columbia well actually i want to first... i want to go back I, hype was probably the wrong word because that, that's how they killed it but let's talk about the bidding war process actually oh sure okay than the hype like the good the good part when all the different labels come sniffing around so they were playing at the Ark um, for for a couple months in 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 the autumn of '66, and they were playing there every night, pretty much. And the Ark would be open all night long. You could have a Huertos Ranchos breakfast there, and you didn't always get paid, but you get food. And they were writing these songs that, as you mentioned, those songs that went on to the first album could have they could have all been hits. And so they were writing this music. They were um, arranging the music, arranging their vocal harmonies and what they were doing uh, instrumentally. And that was happening in, in the autumn of 66, magically for the band. And then they started playing in bigger ballrooms. And so they had a, a couple of shows that called. Before California you get Hall too deep didn't... into the ballrooms, I want to, I want to cut back to, to two different stories you mentioned. One is, while they were doing this, they were not only hanging out with the Grateful Dead and others, they were also hanging out with Sly Stone, who's a DJ at the time, and yep. putting together Sly and the Family Stone, and 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 also the Buffalo Springfield, who was an L.A. Yep. band, and they had yep. three guitar players, but they had not really figured out how to play together as three guitar players. I mean, they, they played together fine, but it wasn't the same, oh my God, this is how you do three guitar players in a rock band. I mean, it was like you had two good lead players who sometimes, you know, Neil Young and Steve Stills sometimes play together. And then Richie Fury was a perfectly good rhythm guitarist, but not a great one. But the, the Springfield is there watching Moby Grape. And there's this moment when Matthew Cates walks in with a bunch of paperwork for the band to sign while they're jamming with Neil Young. And you quote Peter Lewis telling this just heartbreaking story of how they noticed that the contract specifies that Cates will own the name of the band, that Cates is the owner of the band, which is a very unusual thing. I mean, that's a remarkably bad deal. You know, uh, it's not unheard of in music history for, you know, but usually it's at least a member of the band that owns the band name, like Dave Clark or, you know, Billy Ward and the Dominoes or, um, you know, the Coasters manager owned, owned their name. But, but everybody knew this was a sort of a Rubicon that they're crossing. And you tell the story of, of Peter Lewis describing Neil Young's silent reaction to that. And so they, so back then, you know, people were signing things in those days and they, they didn't always know what they were signing or they, 
they didn't understand necessarily the implications of what they're signing. And so you could look at like um, Jimi Hendrix and, you know, some like Orson Welles and even the Beatles, like when they, when they signed away things like, um, I think like uh, they didn't fully understand. Yeah. And, and then the t-shirts, like the right to the Beatles image on t-shirts oh, yeah. and stuff like that in, in North America. So, so the, you had like a lot of that happening um, in, in the, you know, in the sixties and before the sixties and, you don't know, um, we don't know exactly what happened there, but they, it ended up creating a situation where they were fighting over who owns the name. It ended up being decades that they would fight over that. Yeah, and they, it goes on. The court cases went on until 2005. And in fact, Cates is still preventing their CDs from being re-released because he claims he owns the artwork. Um, but I want to read this quote from Peter Lewis uh, talking about Neil Young there. I think Neil knew, even then, that this was the end. We had bought into this process that we should have known better than to buy into. Matthew Cates brought the spirit of conflict into the band. He didn't want to be an equal partnership. He wanted it all. So I, I really – that was a great piece to put in there because reading that, I was like, it's – it's it's as if you're at the crossroads with Robert Johnson when he makes the deal with the devil, you know, um, and and for Neil Young to be seeing that, who's a notoriously shrewd operator, uh, and silently disapproving, you know, uh, it's just a pivotal moment in 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 the coming tragedy of Moby Grape, right at the moment when they're rising. Um, but let's move on now to the bidding war. The the. San Francisco scene is red hot. You talk about articles in the Village Voice that are published around this time. Jefferson Airplane's first album came out and wasn't a huge hit, but was was clearly an up and coming band. Um, Sop with Camel has some hits uh, coming out of that scene, and so the record companies descend on it, including Atlantic Records, the famous storied R and B record that listeners of this show have heard me and Ed Ward talk about so many times. Uh, Electra Records, which is a folk label but that's had some success with a band called love out of la doing folk rock and garage punk and they've just signed the, either they've just signed or they're about to sign the doors mm -hmm. and then you've got columbia records who've listeners to this show have heard me and ad talk endlessly about mitch miller who was the king producer at columbia from like 1950 till 1966 who was sort of a pre-rock pioneer of produced records but then he hated rock and roll and so other than bob dylan who snuck in because of John Hammond and the Birds, who I'm not exactly clear how they snuck in, but they were a hugely successful rock band in Columbia. Columbia, you mostly didn't have rock. Mitch Miller gets fired. A guy named Clive Davis, who's a legend in the music industry, takes over as Columbia, and he wants to go rock. He's got a producer named David Rubinson. He sends to scout the scene. The guy sees the movie great, and it's sort of a mutual love relationship. Um, Tell us about that whole bidding war and, and why they chose to go with Columbia and what that meant. Mm -hmm. So, um, so as you mentioned, like they were they were playing in the they they says I was saying like they played in the arc for a while and that was really working magically for them. They moved to ballrooms and they initially they tried California Hall, which had been used as a ballroom before, but um, for for Moby Grape that was like their initial ballroom debuts and they didn't attract huge audiences um they a couple weeks after california hall they went to play at the avalon and then that same month they played at the fillmore and that is when the magic started happening in terms of 
theme really getting out there. And they shared the bill with the 13th floor elevators, and they actually shared the bill with the Jefferson Airplane. And and, and Skip Spence's um, parting with the Jefferson Airplane was amicable. Like he uh, he he uh, trained his his uh, replacements, and he wrote some some songs that he had written or co-written went on to their second album. Yeah, my best so friend was. I yeah, think it was the first single, the single off Surrealistic Pella. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so there wasn't um, animosity, um, huge animosity, and so they shared the bill, and that's when the grape really started to uh, get a name for for themselves. And around that same time, of course, now you're starting to get more of the media attention on San Francisco, and so right there at the end of '66, early '67, that you you have like. Um, articles being written about San Francisco and it's like what you mentioned also earlier where it, San Francisco was a kind of like um, magical secret in, in 66 in the summer of 66 and then by 67 it had been uh, greatly uh, you know commercialized and there were people flocking there and so this is like at that in-between period and that's when we had labels going you know scouting Moby Grape and they see this band that is you know, there are lineups outside ballrooms for Moby Grape. They're, they're playing magically. Um, that, that really attracted this huge bidding war. And multiple record labels just want this band. So you, it's almost like you can imagine a, a young athlete who um, everybody wants to draft this athlete. And, and they're, they're trying to entice the athlete. And so uh, the Grape were, were really interested in, ultimately, they picked Columbia, um, and, and Don very much was a, a fan of, of the birds. Peter was a huge fan of the birds. Like in, in one old interview, Peter, Peter described it as uh, when when Mr. Toad discovered the car for him. That was that was <laughs> you know the wind in the willows, yes, like him the discovering the, the birds. And so, so you, you had them sign on uh, ultimately with Columbia, and now we're at the early '67. Hugely because they they absolutely loved the birds, and they they started uh, they did some demos at the end of January. Of Before we get into the recording of the album, I want to talk about just a little bit about the two alternatives. It's fun to do alternate history a little bit. Atlantic, yeah, yeah. like the, the other record label, the, the the second place finisher was Electra, who had a producer Paul Rothschild who would yes. go on to produce the Doors, uh, right. and obviously that was. You know, the Doors were one of the great breakout bands of 1967, and are now remembered. You know, 60s rock from California is the Beach Boys, the Grateful Dead, and the Doors. You know, like they, they are absolutely they did it right. You know, Rothschild knew mm-hmm. what he was doing for that time and place, and so you know, I don't think it was in your book, but I've read an interview with Peter Lewis where. I think it was Lewis, where he said he ran into Paul Rothschild in a grocery store at some point in the knots in you know 2007 or whatever, and Paul said, you know, uh, if you guys had signed with me, that would have been your only chance, <laughs> you know. And and, uh, mm-hmm. and then the other anecdote I want to throw in that, that you didn't get in the book was from uh, uh, I'm blanking on his name, the, the head of Atlantic Records, Ahmet Erdogan, the head of Atlantic. Mm-hmm. Er- Records. He really had a beef with Clive Davis, a real rivalry, and did not respect him because Ahmet was a music guy, and Clive Davis was a music business guy. And mm-hmm. Ahmet claims that he's the one who put the idea in his head 
that he told Clive, you know, if we sign these guys, we're going to have Beatlemania. We're going to put out three singles at once. Just remember how the Beatles had, you know, 11 songs in the top 10 at once? We're going to do that with this band. And he said he did it because he knew they lost out on the bidding war and he knew that would be a disaster. And it was. So now you can talk about uh, the hype. Sure. So, um, so the band um, did their recordings, uh, so initial demos with with Columbia in, in late January of '67, and they did a song um, that didn't end up going on the first album, "Looper" by Peter, that got um, held over until their final Columbia album, which is an, a nice song. And they recorded it in three very different versions over the years, but in February they started in earnest recording that first album. And they had these songs that had been percolating. You know, when Moby Grape had their first rehearsal, Peter brought um, Fall On You with him. And Don and Jerry brought an early version of Someday, which Skip um, helped them to modify later. So Skip was a creator with them on that song. And so they had a couple of songs at the beginning. They, in the autumn of 66, they wrote all these additional songs and they were playing them live all the time. And they quickly recorded that first album in February in March of, um, of 67 and all of a sudden now they have this album I think they, they might have had some recording dates in April as well and so they but it was a handful of dates because they're going back and forth all the time uh, from the Bay Area but, down to LA and the main takeaway is they had the goods this is a great album super talented kids everybody knew wow we bottled lightning this is hot shit. And Columbia is as excited as, you know, I mean, they were excited when they signed the band and they couldn't have been happier with what they had. And that's when they put the disastrous promotional plan together. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So they, they made that first, they, they finalized the first album and they, they made the photo for the cover and they had an American flag on the photo and Don, of course, is giving the finger in the photo. Upside it was, down. It was so a, it's a little subtle, but yeah, and but so it's there. And so this is um, right. So they would have done that right in the late spring of '67. And Columbia, at some point there, Columbia had the idea we're going to actually release five singles in one day, and with the intends that this, these singles are going to simultaneously commandeer the top 10. And um, we're far away from the 60s now to know that Beatlemania was such a, such a unique thing that it is not something that we can reproduce. We, we cannot construct, uh, you know, the circumstances that led to Beatlemania. But they were kind of trying to do that when they were putting out those five singles. And so... Ultimately, and like I said, yeah. in the context of the Monkees having done like a televised version of Beatlemania the year before, the emerging rock critics like Rolling Stone magazine is about to publish their first issue are really the, – the hippies have their guard up for this kind of hype. This is exactly yeah, so, the wrong move to make. Mm -hmm. So this is something that, um, yeah, of course, um, made, made a large number of people skeptical, like who – who can make five singles all at once and who's doing that? And are they even playing the instruments? Like Don actually, in one of our interviews, he, he, he expressed that, that concern that the, there were some people who thought that they were like the monkeys and they weren't, they weren't writing their own material and they weren't performing their own material. 
And so we had that happen in, in June of 67. And so none of the singles were hit. Like uh, Home Home went to number 88. And I think Hey Grandma was in the bubbling under section of Billboard. And there was the, there was the expectation that they would have been they would have been hits. And 67 was the last year where people were buying more more singles than they were albums. And and it's so, in the context when the Jefferson Airplane breaks through based on two singles, Somebody to Love and White Rabbit. The Doors break through based on Light My Fire. So singles, are, you know, Jimi Hendrix breaks, breaks through on, on Purple Haze uh, and Manic Depression. This is still a period when rock band, this is sort of the last year, like you say, where rock bands break through on singles. It switches to the album mm-hmm. format very quickly. But I want to, you have a chapter called Three Punches, and I want to talk about the yes. three punches. And it's not just that sure. they put out five singles at once. They also have this opening night party. I believe it might have been the Avalon. I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, it was they, the Avalon. Yeah, they have an opening night party at the Avalon. I, I believe they have purple elephants marching up and down Sunset Strip in L.A. They have cases and cases of Moby Grape labeled wine at the Avalon, and yet no corkscrews. They have orchids that drop from the ceiling that are so so many orchids that people are literally slipping and falling down in the goo that's created. I mean, you could not do a more over-the-top, wrong-headed uh, promotional campaign in that time and place. And and that's mm-hmm. what they've done, you know. And and then <laughs> the second punch falls that very night when three of the band gets arrested. Mm-hmm. And what were they arrested for? What's the story? Well, um, they were... They were, So three of them were arrested in the, on the morning of... Um, it would have been June the 7th, 67, and uh, contributing to the delinquency of minors and possession of marijuana. And Jerry Miller uh, had been borrowing a car and he was arrested for the possession of marijuana. And then Jerry, Peter and Skip were uh, arrested for contributing to the delinquency of minors. And so this led now to... And how did that happen? A like... Court. like- what, how oh, did so they they, up- they were at the party. They were at the release party, which was at the Avalon, which went on, you know, late. Uh, Janice Joplin was performing with them for a part of that night. Um, uh, people were flown in from out of town. This was, like you said, it was designed to be. It, it was wrongheaded. It was, but it was designed to be this over-the-top affair uh, to to try and capitalize on the commercial potential because this would have been executives really planning these things and and. It would have been there to capture that commercial potential of San Francisco and couching the band within that um, within that um, potential. So I wrote the chapter in the book from the perspective of an ad executive. If you could imagine Don Draper trying to sell people on these ideas, that's what I I thought about. And so, what would an ad executive do? How would that person? argue in favor of doing these things before they happened, before they became a disaster? What would that person be saying to convince a bunch of people in a room that this, these were all great ideas? And so it was absolutely over the top. Some people went to party um, north of the Golden Gate Bridge, um, not far from where the Ark was uh, by Salsalito. It was just like, it was right by the police station there, actually, just a, a few miles away. And it was, um, they, they got... Uh, so the police came and, um, and it's like a group of like some... 20 people partying, you know, young and people. It wasn't some sort of sordid, you know, like Led Zeppelin in the groupies scene. It was pretty innocent. I mean, it's just young people in their teens and twenties, maybe smoking a few joints, watching the sun come up, 
partying, but not some over the top orgy. And yet the police did not approve. No. And so, well, three of them, um, three of them got arrested. And it's interesting when you look at, so I, I quote from a lot of like, um, throughout the book, I, I quote from contemporary news reports because that gives you a real flavor of the time. So like in, in one of the news reports, actually, the length of Jerry Miller's hair and having like a uh, facial hair, having a beard is like uh, actually included in the newspaper report about them getting arrested. And so this is the time where, um, you know, those kinds of things that like that, that would have been put in newspaper reports, absolutely with, you know, full intent of conveying a certain message to people. And so, you know, as a kind of punishment, these guys got arrested and, the 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 felony the the marijuana charge got dropped fairly quickly after a couple of weeks, but the contributing to the delinquency of minors ended up lagging in the courts. It's almost like a Kafka situation where this court case is just going on and on, and and it keeps getting um, postponed. And so eventually, by by January, they were all um, you know they're absolved of everything, or you know they're found innocent. Yeah. But by then, they had six months of uh, this hanging over their heads. And, and um, it's not good and, for their reputation. Yeah, and that's one thing like I want to bring out because Colombia misplayed misplayed their cards disastrously badly with this, you know, opening party over the top promotion and the five singles at once. But because three fifths of the band gets arrested, Colombia can blame the band instead of themselves. And um, unfortunately, we have chewed through an hour like it was nothing. And mm-hmm. I really can I get you back. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I'd be happy awesome. to. So we'll we'll come back and tell, because this is really one of the epic rock and roll tragic tales. And, and it's also, there's not just one good album here. There's there's no. five albums worth of great material that they put together. Um, and, and I want to talk about all that. And Skip Spence's tragic story where he's committed to Bellevue and attacks Don Stevenson and David Rubinson with an axe and... Uh, you know, so many, so much more to the story. So I really thank you for uh, coming on the show and we'll continue that. And sorry, everybody. I know that I promised that we would be talking about Western swing with Ed Ward this week. That'll be next week. We'll book the, the follow up with uh, Dr. Cobb and, and have him back. I, I might do the two Moby grapes back to back, but we will get to the Western swing episode. This is let it roll. Thanks cam. And we'll have you back on very soon. Thanks for listening. Next week, either Ed Ward and I will finally cover Western Swing, or Cam Cobb and I will continue the story of Moby Grape. Check in Monday to find out. Be sure and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com to access the YouTube playlists and hear the music we're talking about. Cam Cobb's What's Big and Purple and Lives in the Ocean, The Moby Grape Story, is available from Jawbone Press at Amazon.com and wherever fine books are sold. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.